This is Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams, America's top web bloggers in the legal profession. And yes, they are attorneys, both of them, one from California, one from Massachusetts. You can only guess what will happen next. Coast to Coast is sponsored by Law.com, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Coast to Coast on the Legal Talk Network. This is Bob Ambrogi in Massachusetts. And I'm Craig Williams in sunny and warm Southern California. I write a blog called May It Please the Court. Bob? Uh, Rub it in, Craig. Uh, And I write a blog called Law Sites and another blog called Media Law. Uh, Well, a new study of uh, General Counsel finds that uh, 86% of those at 169 companies surveyed in 2005 said that their main concern is keeping track of Compliance issues, company activities that might have legal implications. And as last year has gone by and next year is on its way, I'm betting that that percentage is on its way up. There have been several stories recently about CEOs from major companies resigning. Seems like almost one every other week. Last week we heard about Monster's founder and CEO uh, and KB Holmes' CEO. Those kinds of resignations can put fears into companies, especially companies' general counsel. Sarbanes-Oxley weighs heavily, as many other corporate governance issues, such as environmental compliance, health services compliance, uh, electronic tracking and compliance uh, organization, plays a role in the day-to-day life of corporate America. And today we're going to discuss the almost one-a-day compliance issues that companies are facing in relationship to the general counsel's role. This is the GC, the guard dog, so to speak, for corporate compliance. Well, let's welcome our guests. Uh, First, we would like to welcome to the program Attorney Lanny J. Davis from the Washington, D.C. office of the global law firm of Oreck, Harrington, and Sutcliffe, uh, with uh, 900 lawyers strong and a history dating back to 1863. Uh, The firm has been around a lot longer than Sarbanes-Oxley, that's for sure. Attorney Davis uh, is a litigator with a particular focus on securities fraud, accounting irregularities cases, antitrust, government contracts, and commercial litigation. Uh, he has served as special counsel to the president and was spokesperson for the president on matters concerning the campaign finance investigations and other legal issues. And in 2005, President Bush appointed Mr. Davis to serve on the five-member Privacy and Civil Liberties Oversight Board created by Congress and part of the 2005 Intelligence Reform Act. Uh, Mr. Davis uh, is kind enough to join us today from from, uh, overseas where he's traveling. Uh, Welcome to the program, Lenny. Thank you for having me. We'd also like to welcome Gary Levine. Gary is the president and founder of Two-Step Software, which has its roots in both law and technology. Gary started Two-Step in 1995 following the sale of Pilot Software, where he was general counsel. Pilot was a Cambridge company based in interna- uh, Cambridge-based international software company with over 300 employees and offices in eight countries. Two Steps database application named Corporate Focus is the largest collection of corporate governance and stockholder information for venture-based venture-backed companies, based on its use for m- by over a third of the U.S. law firms and hundreds of general counsel. Welcome to the show, Gary. It's a pleasure to join you. And finally, joining us today is Charles M. Elson. Uh, Charles practices in the areas of corporate and securities law. He's currently the first occupant of the Edgar S. Willard Jr. Chair of Corporate Governance at the University of Delaware. He's also of counsel to the law firm Holland & Knight. 
He formerly served as professor of law at Stetson University College of Law in Florida from 1990 to 2001. His fields of expertise include corporation securities regulation and corporate governance. Welcome to the show, Charles. Uh, good to be here. Well, Lanny, let's start with a question for you. Um, is the GC at any company that they've got a lot to worry about? What do you think are the top three issues that cause them to lose sleep? Oh, I, I think the most important issue right now is uh, backdating of options, which uh, seem to be something akin to prohibition in the 1920s with everybody doing it and nobody really asking the fundamental question, isn't there something wrong with backdating? And the fact uh, is that an awful lot of uh, executives did it thinking that it was legal, and it can be legal, but it's complicated because it requires uh, accurate disclosure and tax treatment, et cetera. So that would be my number one issue. I think the number two issue is probably still in the um, accounting department. Uh, the pressure for short-term earnings goals being met is still very unhealthy in the marketplace. It requires executives to think short-term rather than long-term, uh, and it uh, leads back to the first issue, which is uh, Push the stock up as high as you can, as quickly as you can, and don't think long-term. And that sometimes uh, happens uh, in the accounting department rather than in the workplace or in the, in the marketplace, rather. So that's still, I think, the second issue that comes across my desk uh, even after years after Enron. And then I think I'd be interested in Mr. Elson's view on this. The, the whole issue of executive compensation and the relativity of the levels of compensation that uh, executives are receiving compared to middle management and people on the assembly line uh, is becoming more and more of a, a simple embarrassment uh, to explain to most Americans why there should be uh, hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars paid to people who show up for work and maybe do a good job as uh, executives. We've really gotten out of proportion, and I think politically, if not legally, certainly politically, uh, that is the probably most important problem uh, corporate America faces today. Well, Mr. Elson, let's throw that question to you and, and ask, uh, what do you see as the, as, the, as the three issues that are keeping GC up at night? Oh, I think executive compensation is clearly way up there with the uh, new disclosure requirements uh, of the SEC uh, on them uh, with potential liability coming out of those disclosure requirements. Uh, I think the sort of public uh, concern with executive comp is is, is uh, certainly of note, uh, and uh, institutional investor concern. I think secondly, uh, certainly uh, compliance, uh, a la the spectating, which actually kind of is a subset of executive compensation. You know, did it occur at your company, and if it did, what do you do about it? Uh, why did it occur? Uh, and then I think uh, thirdly would probably be you know general compliance 404 type issues. Uh, that I, I think, uh, you know, and, uh, and a lot of this spins out of 404, Section 404, you know, the internal controls issues uh, and, and compliance issues that kind of spin out of that. I think that those are the, uh, to be the major ones. I think it's sort of a sub-issue would have to be, oh, gosh, things like uh, majority voting and whatnot or, you know, changes in voting system, shareholder access to the company proxy. But I think that uh, that's uh, minor at this point in, in compared to the other three issues. Well, Gary, you've probably got Gary Levine. You've probably got more than three uh, compliance issues in two-step software. What's the range of the kinds of things that you cover? Well, I'll tell you the uh, 
When, when we talk to general counsels and, and over the course of the last uh, 10 years, we've certainly worked with thousands of them. We, I, I would say my uh, top issues that we look at and, and, and are in the news currently is our, our number one goal and the simplest uh, uh, aspect is can a company build a good foundation just to literally collect all of its corporate governance records? And this really ties back in the first instance to Sarbanes, where they talk about do you know who your officers and directors are? Can you tell which ones are independent? Can you back that up? And can you document which ones have expertise? So it's just the literal collection of your corporate governance records is where two-step is most involved. The second area that we see general counsel jumping on right after that is building a so-called control environment, as Charles was referring to, and uh, comes straight out of Section 404 of Sarbanes. But we find that that's something that not only was I addressing back uh, 15 years ago as a general counsel, but that the thousands of companies that we work with that are either venture-backed or privately held, they're still trying to create a good control environment. And the most obvious area of that is in the contract negotiation area. If you're negotiating contracts around the world, how do you make sure that you're not uh, missing anything in that uh, legal process. And the final area that, that seems to be uh, uh, very important right now and is sort of topical with today's technology is the protection of data and confidential information and personal information, basically the question of what happens if somebody comes in and takes a Social Security number, how do you protect the company's own confidential information, and are you living up to the right standards with respect to data protection, personal information protection, and uh, Protection. Annie, I wonder if I could ask. This survey suggested that uh, uh, what was what it what it thought was significant in part was that GC are paying much more attention or much more concerned about compliance than about outside legal fees and and some other issues that may be on their desks. Hey, how does this increasing emphasis on compliance uh, alter or affect the relationship between in-house counsel and, and the outside lawyers that they work with? Well, my particular perspective um, is trying to bridge the gap between uh, outside counsel, public relations imperatives in the sense of transparency and getting uh, all the facts out when there's some type of an irregularity or a legal crisis, and uh, the general counsel who has to arbiter uh, between those two perspectives. Uh, Frequently, lawyers who are looking at regulatory risks or litigation risks will err on the side of no commenting when a headline or a newspaper is calling. And the uh, external communications department or the public relations uh, and investor relations people will say no commenting is an admission of guilt you're going to cause our share values to drop, you're going to harm our brand, you're going to hurt our reputation. The general counsel has to be able <clears throat> to arbiter and to find a way to uh, reconcile those two perspectives. Um, it happens to be what I am now doing for a living for the most part is to, as an attorney, engage my fellow uh, attorneys and litigators to try to get them to be more forthcoming with the press in the middle of a crisis rather than uh, the, the 
traditional method of saying we're not going to comment because we're under an investigation or we're um, somehow going to prejudice ourselves by, by getting the facts out and getting the story over with. But does that suggest that they're, they're not calling you until, until it's too late? I mean, until the crisis is already occurring and the, and the compliance issues uh, have, have essentially failed at that point? Well, one of the reasons I uh, admire Charles Elson so much is that the advice he gives on uh, corporate governance and some of the uh, issues surrounding corporate governance are the ways to avoid some of these crises. If more public companies uh, followed Professor Elson's advice, they may not have gotten into some of the high-profile crises. So I guess from my perspective, it's always better when I'm called in before the bad headlines so that I can work with the board of directors or the senior officials of public companies to try to fix a problem before uh, a reporter uh, writes about it. But unfortunately, human nature being what it is, um, just following the story of Exxon, that was so obvious as a temporary um, pressure cooker that had to blow up. Yet when the people were right in the middle of it, they thought they could get away with what they were doing forever. So you never uh, see things as clearly as you do in hindsight, I'm afraid. Well, Professor Elson, there's a um, an adage in the environmental industry that's called be a supervisor, go to jail. And it's, it's almost as if now it's uh, be a general counsel and go to jail. Do you think you talked about the, the high corporate salaries? Do you think that there's now some justification for the kind of risks that are associated with being an executive, given all of the compliance and the correlation to uh, high corporate salaries? Well, that's interesting. I mean, I I, I I don't think anyone would trade a high corporate salary for jail. <laughs> Put it that way. Uh, you know, I, mean, I think I don't think you can pay anyone enough to take the risk of going to jail. I mean, I think the key is that as general counsel, you establish within the organization appropriate compliance procedures uh, that uh, are designed to, uh, to sniff out and prevent illegal conduct, and frankly, uh, that you develop a tone at the top, if you will, coming from the general counsel's office, that says that uh, you know that improper behavior will not be tolerated throughout the organization. I think that's really the key to it. That's again tone at the top of ethics within the organization, carrying through the organization from top to bottom. Uh, I, I wouldn't correlate you know the, one salary to an increased risk of, uh, of, uh, of imprisonment or something like that. Uh, I think an increased salary has to do with the uh, difficulty and, 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 and time required of the job, and, and obviously a, a more competitive labor market. Uh, certainly, if you had said, oh, we'll give you a 50% raise if you have a 100% chance of increase in chance of going to jail, I think most people would forego the raise. Gary, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit more about uh, the, the software products that you have and how that fits into that. And are your clients uh, GC or law firms or a little of both? Uh, in our particular case, uh, our uh, corporate compliance software is called Corporate Focus. And uh, our uh, particular market is broken up about 50-50. As you mentioned earlier, we work with uh, the majority of the major law firms in the United States that have this kind of practice, are using our software currently. And as a result, as attorneys tend to move from law firms to, be, to go in-house, uh, we now work with hundreds of legal departments that are also doing this. Uh, what's kind of interesting about, about the history of compliance is that when we started two-step in 1995, if you uh, ask people, you know, are you working on corporate governance, nobody would know what you're talking about. It's almost like uh, we think of it as the Purell in the office today. 
two years ago, who the heck would be walking around cleaning your hands every hour with Purell? Well, five years ago, before uh, Enron, nobody was thinking about corporate governance. Instead, they were tracking the same information and calling it subsidiary management and stock and option management, and they were very concerned with it. What we decided in the mid-'90s was what was important was a method to get a technology that could bring together in one place and dynamically link all of the corporate governance records for a single company worldwide so they wouldn't be found in all sorts of different places. And that's really the perfect example that's come out of the option backdating scandals of today. What's remarkable about that is people were tracking their options in one place and tracking their board uh, minutes and their compensation minutes in a different place. And that turned out to be the crux of the problem. We had uh, one of the most notorious uh, uh, companies involved in the stock option, the backdating scandal, call us last month. In the midst of their investigation, uh, they needed to do a document production, and they were unable to get their hands on their board minutes and their compensation committee minutes from the 90s when most of these uh, violations occurred or the issues occurred. And as a result, they said, if we're going to put all of our corporate records together to comply with the document request, we might as well organize all of our corporate records uh, at the same time so we won't find ourselves in this kind of a problem going forward now that everybody from those days has already left the company. So that's really our goal at uh, Two Step uh, from, uh, prior to Sarbanes and going forward in this uh, popularity of corporate governance era was to really help companies simplify, organize, and centralize all of their corporate governance records so that it would be a good foundation to help avoid some of the compliance issues that are now uh, very well known. Lanny, are you having a difficult time in your practice convincing corporate counsel and uh, upper-level executives to get on board with uh, corporate governance? Um, I would say uh, it's gotten much, much uh, better. And uh, again, I come at it from the standpoint of bridging over into media and being able to tell reporters the full story as a crisis is unfolding rather than allowing uh, facts to dribble out through uh, leaks and through sometimes inaccurate sources. The uh, I think initial views uh, prior to Enron were to be restrained about talking to the media in the middle of a crisis. I think since Enron, uh, there's been more and more uh, acceptance by uh, my fellow attorneys where most of the resistance comes from because they genuinely and legitimately are concerned about saying something that may turn out to be inaccurate or saying something that may give away something to plaintiff's counsel that you will uh, live to regret. So those sorts of uh, debates have to occur within the attorney-client uh, privilege room among lawyers, but I've found the evolution since uh, Enron has been in the direction of getting out in front of stories rather than allowing them to dribble out and hurt share value and hurt brand uh, significantly. Well, it's time for us to take a short break in our program. When we return, we'll get some final thoughts and our uh, more information from our guests. We invite you to visit Law.com for timely legal news and in-depth resources. From daily headlines to practice-specific updates, Law.com provides up-to-date information to those working in the legal profession. As part of its coverage, Law.com is proud that J. Craig Williams' blog, May It Please the Court, and Robert Ambrogi's blog, 
lost sites are part of its blog network. Don't wait any longer. Visit Law.com today and get free subscriptions of our Newswire newsletter with the top legal stories of the day. Or sign up for a free trial subscription to one of our Practice Center sections. If you found us in the podcast library of iTunes, thanks for listening. Check out some of our other shows at LegalTalkNetwork.com and become a member. It's free. Coast to Coast is produced by the Legal Talk Network and a staff of broadcast professionals. If you have an idea for a topic or a show, we want to hear from you. Go to LegalTalkNetwork.com and send us an email. If you have a comment or question, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message on the Legal Talk Network listener line at 781-634-8959. We really do listen to the messages and even answer your questions on our next show. A video settlement documentary can be the most powerful and persuasive way to bring about a speedy settlement in your client's case. The Boston Media Group has a staff of television professionals with 20 years' experience writing and producing compelling stories just like the ones you've seen on 60 Minutes or Dateline. We put a human face on the lawsuit with compelling interviews, dramatizations, and visual presentations of the fact. Think of it as a video opening argument that will compel the attorneys on the other side to settle. Call us for a consult at 800-317-5221. That's 800-317-5221. Or check out our website at bostonmediagroup.com. Welcome back to Coast to Coast. I'm Craig Williams. And this is Bob Ambrogi. We'd like to welcome back our guests, uh, Lanny Davis, an attorney uh, with Ora Carrington, Gary Levine, president and founder of Two-Step Software, and Professor Charles Elson, chair in corporate governance and director of the John L. Weinberg Center for Corporate Governance at the University of Delaware. Lanny, there's, we've talked a little bit about some of the larger style uh, corporate governance issues with Enron, and there's some other corporate scandals and debacles out there like HP and so forth, but there's also a very big uh, small cap market of publicly traded companies. What kinds of concerns do the small companies have at this early stage of their uh, development that, that you might provide advice to? Well, I think the smaller companies uh, have uh, the problem of limited resources, and they frequently cut corners in places that I'm sure Professor Elson would say is exactly the wrong place to cut corners. For example, having uh, independent directors that can be attracted to uh, be concerned about corporate governance and be concerned about uh, accounting issues and other um, issues that uh, arise uh, even if you're a private company that can get you into trouble, uh, you tend to uh, cut back on compensation for directors and you tend to cut back on fees for uh, advisors and uh, consultants. Um, and I think that may be uh, very short-sighted, penny-wise, pound-foolish. But I think the big picture uh, in, in the last 10 years is that uh, companies large and small have to ask themselves, as the people at Hewlett-Packard apparently did not ask themselves, uh, the old rule of crisis management, are you ready to read about what you're doing on the front page of the Wall Street Journal? And then I always add another question. Are you willing to read about that written by a hostile reporter? If the answer to 
either one of those is, no, I don't want to read about this, then my answer is don't do it. And if we had more executives, small and large companies, asking themselves whether uh, turning the lights on is going to threaten them as opposed to keeping the lights off and doing things in the dark, uh, we would have avoided a lot of these corporate scandals. I understand you have to leave us uh, before we yes. finish up with our other guests. We want to thank you and tell our listeners that they can find out more about you at oric.com, O-R-R-I-C-K, and uh, appreciate your participating in the program today. Thanks so much for having me, and uh, goodbye, everyone. Thank you. And uh, uh, Charles, I wonder if I could turn to you and, and ask you what uh, – uh, I think we have about about five minutes left here, and uh, what is it? Uh, what are you telling companies to do these days regarding compliance? What 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 are they not doing right, or how can they minimize the headache of, of compliance and keep it from becoming uh, uh, the, the kind of crisis that Lanny has been talking about? Well, obviously, you've got to set up a compliance mechanism within the corporation. I think everyone agrees on that, uh, and that comes from both, you know, sort of governmental requirements and judicial requirements. You know, you've got to uh, assure uh, outside parties that you're, you're thoughtful about compliance within the organization itself. The thing I get concerned about is uh, compliance for compliance' sake. In other words, uh, where an organization, a compliance mechanism is set up not to prevent, you know, violation of law, but more or less to present, present on re- a record on review that you were attempting to comply with the law. That's not the issue. The issue is is, is bad acts again, are, are bad for the corporation generally. And uh, I think the key is to create a vigilant environment within the corporation uh, through all kinds of things, independent boards, uh, employee, uh, director, uh, ownership in the company, uh, that makes uh, the likelihood of, 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 of misconduct less, and number two, makes the detection of misconduct more likely. Uh, that's really the key. It needs to be in everyone's interest uh, to prevent Bad conduct, but when you when you set up a mechanism to prevent bad conduct, that's really designed to respond to a legal issue, a la a compliance mandate coming from the outside. I think you run into the uh, form over substance issue, and you begin to uh, lose the potency of the program. The key has got to be internal motivation, tone at the top, all the way down the organization about the importance of ethics and compliance, uh, independence on the part of the board, uh, independence on the part of the outside auditor. Uh, and uh, an employee base that's uh, that frankly is committed to the company's health and interest, as opposed to the individual employee's health and interest. Well, do those companies exist? Uh, I think that it, well, you know, nothing in this world is perfect. Uh, but I think a lot of people, having thought about this, are basically trying to move to that model. There was a report issued by uh, the National Association of Corporate Directors and uh, Grant Thornton. This is probably about ten years ago now. That basically outlined uh, this, this sort of program. And it's interesting. Uh, after the Enron thing occurred, I remember going back and looking at that report. And I said, you know, they only taken this report to heart because I think that that really was, to me boiled down was really the essence to ensuring uh, uh, compliance and, and, and creating a healthy organization. And bought some two-step software. <laughs> um, Gary, we'd like to get your, your final thoughts about the things that we've been talking about this morning and also uh, allow you to give your contact information so that our uh, listeners can find out more about you and your software. Now, let me just follow up on the point that Charles Elson uh, just made in terms of your, your last question. Do companies like that exist? I think uh, uh, there was a recent survey uh, done by a, a national law firm, Foley and Lardner, that looked at 9,000 privately held companies that are not mandated by Sarbanes to uh, uh, comply with good corporate governance standards, and they found that 
75 or 80 percent of those companies are actually taking steps to do co uh, good corporate governance and proper corporate compliance. So it really is something that is currently on the minds of all companies, not only those who have been forced to do it by Sarbanes, but I think it's something that is going to be uh, adopted to a much greater degree across all types of companies because they all have third-party stakeholders, whether it's the employees, the investors, or the public, who are looking at these companies and want them to be uh, acting appropriately and following uh, good corporate governance standards. And it's a trend that we're already seeing in the nonprofit world where certain states are requiring good corporate governance standards based on the primary principles of uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, but not in terms of following Sarbanes-Oxley uh, as the letter of the law. Um, so I think that's what we're really going to be seeing uh, uh, going forward. And for uh, any more information on uh, our products at uh, Two-Step Software, uh, people can uh, go to our website at twostep.com, which is T-W-O-S-T-E-P.com. Thanks. And Charles, where can people find out more about uh, uh, you and uh, your program? Uh, the University of Delaware. Uh, we, uh, University of Delaware, we have a, actually a website, uh, http uh, slash double slash www.learner, L-E-R-N-E-R, dot udel, that's U-D-E-L, dot E-D-U, dot C-C-G. And it's the Weinberg Center for Corporate Governance at the University of Delaware. Well, thank you very much to our guests. Uh, we've uh, appreciated your comments and your contributions to the program and your time. Thank you very much. Enjoyed it. Thank you very much. And, Bob, it's been a pleasure, as always, to talk with you this week and look forward to speaking with you again uh, next week. Hope you had a happy Thanksgiving. Uh, well, Craig, I, before we break, I have to mention that I, I promised uh, on our blog yesterday uh, that uh, you and I are going to have to record a program while we're racing in the Iditarod in Alaska. I, I saw that. <laughs> to make up for Evan Schaefer, who recorded a podcast this week while downhill skiing in Chicago, so uh, the, the I mean in uh, Colorado, so the gauntlet has been laid down. You bring the dogs, I'll bring the sled. Okay. See you next week. Take care. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast with Robert Ambrogi and J. Craig Williams. Coast to Coast has been sponsored by Law.com. We hope you'll listen again and check out our other shows on the Legal Talk Network. The Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast, your resource for the tips and tactical advice you need to grow your business. Plus, keep up with the news and commentary you crave to stay one step ahead. It's hosted by me, Gee Sakalakis. And me, Conrad Song. Every other week, we break down the issues holding back your marketing strategy and talk about the changes you need to be prepared for. Check out the Lunch Hour Legal Marketing Podcast wherever you get your podcasts or on YouTube.